Well, hello, oddballs. It's your host, Bobby, and this is Oddities on Elm Street. So if you haven't noticed, we did have to take a little break. I'm so sorry, but life just got so busy for me personally and even for Lexi. Um, I had a sick baby and then I got sick. We did a little bit of traveling, which I want to say a huge thank you to Hush Haunted Attractions. I got an invite to experience their haunted house I don't even want to call it just a haunted house because it's so much more than that. But I got to go and experience it during their opening weekend. It was amazing. It's in Westland, Michigan, so it's sort of down by Detroit. So if you're in the area, you need to go check it out. I'm not even really in the area. It's about three hours from me, but it was seriously so worth it. I've been to quite a few haunted houses, but... This one was so much cooler than anything I've ever seen. It's indoors, but they've built the entire place to look like like a haunted village that you would see in like Hocus Pocus or Sleepy Hollow or something. And they have these themed bars throughout the entire place and they're kind of like hidden throughout the haunted attraction. Like the first bar is right in the foyer area so you can get some drinks before you go into the haunted house. You start out in the hotel lobby and then you get into this elevator like you're going up to your room and then obviously shit goes terribly wrong and that's when the scary stuff happens. And then throughout the haunted house experience, they have two more hidden themed bars. I posted stuff on my Instagram about it already and I'll be uploading more there, but I'm going to be saving some of that stuff exclusively just for my patrons. But yeah, I got to meet Skeleton Sam, who is like a music producer with Lovecraft. They produced music for like Hocus Pocus 2, Hubie Halloween, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So that was really cool too. Like I said, if you're in the area, definitely check it out. It's a whole experience. I enjoyed myself so much. And also we have a couple new patrons, actually. So... We have Nicole, who has joined the spookiest crew, and we have Evelyn, who has joined the super spooky crew. Thank you so much, Nicole and Evelyn. It's so funny because when I first started Patron, I felt a little silly doing so because I was like, this is going to be really embarrassing because I don't think anyone is going to give me their hard-earned money. And I am just surprised every single time I see a new person that has joined our Patreon. And so I'm so thankful for that. The money that we make on Patreon goes to make this podcast just a little bit better. And so we definitely appreciate that. And if you want to become a patron, you can head on over to patreon.com slash oddities on Elm Street. I'm going to try to make sure that we make up for lost time. So I'll probably be posting some bonus episodes and a good amount of stuff on our Patreon page. So stay tuned. And also just thank you to everyone for being patient with us during this time. Sometimes life just happens, but I appreciate you guys. So for our episode today, we are covering another unsolved mystery. 
That mystery is the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370. I'll give just a quick summary for those of you who might not be familiar with this case. Malaysia Flight 370 was a red-eye flight carrying 227 passengers, and including staff, the plane had 239 people in total. It left out on March 8, 2014 from Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia and planned to land at the Beijing Capital International Airport in China, but it would never arrive. Before we begin to talk about exactly what took place and the information that we do have about this flight, let's talk about some of the people involved in operating the plane itself. I think it's important to understand some background information about these people before we dive into what exactly happened and what the theories surrounding the case are. So the aircraft was a Boeing 777. It was absolutely massive. It was actually the second largest plane at this time. This wasn't like a new sort of creation. These planes had actually been around for quite a while. In fact, this plane specifically was the 404th Boeing 777 to be manufactured. And the plane that was being used for this flight had been in use for about 12 years and was built to hold up to 282 people. You're probably like, why is she telling us all this nonsense? I know nothing about planes, but... I feel it's important to mention because it kind of rules out the possibility of the plane malfunctioning because of some new technology that they hadn't perfected yet or, you know, because the plane was above its capacity level or whatever. It's also said that this particular plane was so safe that each passenger had a more likely chance of being individually struck by lightning than for something to go wrong with the plane itself. And that is just one of those things that makes this whole event even more baffling. The plane was being flown by 53-year-old Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah. He had a lot of experience. He had been flying since 1981 after joining Malaysia Airlines as a cadet pilot. After training and receiving his pilot's license, he became a second officer with the airline two years later and then was promoted to captain in 1991. He had a total of 18,365 hours of flying experience, so again, very, very good at his job, and very experienced specifically with this plane and this route. The co-pilot was 27-year-old First Officer Farik Abdul Hamid. He had been flying since 2007, and what's really sad is that he only needed one more flight during his training in order to become a First Officer and that flight was Malaysia Flight 370. Some of the passengers on this flight included 153 Chinese citizens. There was also a group of calligraphy artists and some of their family that were returning from an exhibition in Kuala Lumpur. 38 of the passengers were native Malaysians, and the remaining passengers were just kind of a mix of different nationalities. It's so scary to think about how all of these people just got onto this airplane, expecting to return home a few hours later, and they just vanished. When I hear about stories like this, the first thing I imagine is just like, what would that have been like? I can't even imagine the fear and the confusion. So after midnight on March 8th, Flight 370 
was set to take off to its destination of Beijing. It was a red-eye flight that was prepared to fly through the night and expected to land in Beijing right before dawn. From everything we can see, things were going perfectly to plan. This was just another flight that Captain Zahari had taken dozens of times, just a check in his to-do list for the day, everything seemingly routine. So, like I said earlier, 227 passengers, 12 crew members, the plane took off at exactly 12.41 a.m. It was a clear, calm night. There was no turbulence expected. And once the plane reaches cruising altitude, it heads over the South China Sea. Shortly after 1 a.m., so pretty quickly after takeoff, things begin to get strange. So I did not know this before looking into this case, but it's another one of those things that I feel is important to mention when talking about it. Each country has their own air traffic control, and once the plane passes from border to border, or sector to sector like they call it, the flight is then handed off to the country it's flying over. Flight 370 was flying out of Malaysia and was getting ready to cross over into Vietnam territory and therefore be handed off to Vietnam's air traffic control. Hopefully the way I ex just explained it there makes sense, but the handoff of Flight 370 crossing over into Vietnam goes as usual. Pilot Zahari responds just as he should, but 90 seconds later, the plane disappears off radar. This just doesn't happen. There are so many systems built into these planes to make sure that this doesn't happen. And even if a plane does vanish off from radar, it's usually very short-lived. It's also worth noting that these tracking systems are checked before takeoff and all of them were noted as working. The other thing is that there are also reporting systems on the plane that send information back to the ground, kind of like the computer you might find in your car that tells you when your oil level is low or if your engine's performing out of the ordinary, but nothing was. At exactly 1.19 a.m., the handoff happened successfully as the plane moved into Vietnamese airspace. The final words from the cockpit were, all right, good night. That is a very customary phrase that was regularly used. Saying goodnight was very normal when executing a handover from one airspace to another. And then two minutes later, at 1.21 a.m., the plane's transponder goes off. This is scary. A transponder is responsible for sending information to radar systems that tell air traffic controllers information about the flight number, its altitude, its speed, and without it, the plane is literally flying under the radar. From the ground's point of view, the plane is flying blind. They now have no idea which plane is them or where they're going, and in order to turn the transponder off, it's just a simple flip of a switch in the cockpit. After this, Thailand's military radar is still able to track the plane's signal before it disappears off from their radar too, just a minute later. The Thai radar did, however, pick up an unknown aircraft flying in the opposite direction to what Flight 370 had been going. It's during that time frame, 1.21 a.m. and 1.28 a.m., that the plane appears to have changed its course. 
Another system built into planes called ACARS, A-C-A-R-S, was supposed to transmit a signal a half hour after it was last sent at 107, but it never did. And this is big. The ACAR system isn't just a click of a button or a flip of a switch. And the system itself is what reports to satellites about anything being done to the aircraft. But in order to cut this system off, you have to have the knowledge to do so. It's almost strategic. Although the plane now is no longer transmitting information by ACARS, the plane can still be detected in the sky, but at this point only by military radar. And that's exactly what happened around 2.15 a.m. The plane was tracked as it passed over the Strait of Malacca. At this point, the plane was hundreds of miles off course, and nobody had any idea why. The military radar showed that it flew in a westerly direction back over the Malay Peninsula, and this was the last time anyone was able to track Flight 370. So once it's discovered that absolutely nobody has eyes on Malaysia Flight 370, the preliminary search for the plane begins. The Malaysian government used as many connections as possible to locate its whereabouts before officially announcing that it was in fact missing. Then they start working with other air traffic controllers and other aircrafts that were flying around the same route. Have they seen the plane that is no longer able to be tracked? By 3.45 a.m., Malaysia Airlines issues a code red alert about the missing plane, and time continues to go on with the confusion still lingering before the time rolls around to 6.30 a.m., the time the flight was scheduled to land in Beijing. At 7.24 a.m., Malaysia Airlines publicly announces the plane's disappearance. So, let's rewind just a little bit. In the beginning, I introduced you to the plane's pilot. There are a couple of things worth mentioning here. And I don't necessarily want to say that these events give insight into the plane's disappearance, because, of course, it's possible that none of this is connected. But it still gives us an idea of where the pilot's head might have been as he took his last flight. Captain Zahari did seem a little bit off to his family within the months leading up to this. They noted that something appeared to have changed in him, he was acting a little bit more withdrawn, he had a flight simulator in his basement, and this is where he would spend most of his time, which is strange considering that he was a husband and a father. But he would just sort of isolate himself for hours in this flight simulator, which was specifically designed to mimic a cockpit of a Boeing 777, the same plane he flew on the day of its disappearance. And after the disappearance, his daughter came forward saying that he was like a different person. Just a day before takeoff of Flight 370, Captain Zahari's wife left their home and took their children with her. Obviously, this paints a certain kind of picture, and for this reason, a lot of people have thought that this was possibly a suicide mission. I do still feel like there are a lot of things that are still not being explained by that conclusion, but to make things look worse for Captain Zahari, after the plane disappeared, Officials found deleted routes on his flight simulator just hours before flying that plane. Now, it's not believed that this is in any way connected 
But if we're going to talk about something unsolved, we have to mention things that really could just be a coincidence. And like I said earlier, this information really plays into this theory that this flight was possibly a suicide mission. It's also important to remember that the co-pilot was there. He was present during this time. But there are, of course, some theories that explain this away to prove the idea of a suicide. Like, the co-pilot was passed out, knocked out, etc. But we'll get more into detail about these theories later. So, back to the timeline. The flight has taken off, it's flown out of Malaysia, and as it's flying over Vietnam, Captain Zahari confirmed that the plane would be switching over to Vietnam's air traffic control, but it never did. It was switched off of Malaysia's after he said goodnight, but never switched on to Vietnam's control. In fact, it never even reached the frequency required to switch to Vietnam's air traffic control. The plane can still be tracked by Malaysia's air traffic control for a little while until all of these transponders and such were turned off. And while watching the flight, they noticed that instead of continuing on its intended path, the plane makes a sharp 30-degree turn to the right, sending it away from Malaysia and the path that would take it over Vietnam and into China, and instead it headed straight toward open ocean. Two minutes later, the transponder was manually turned off by someone in the cockpit. They've now taken all of the necessary steps possible to locate the plane, but with no luck. Thailand, Vietnam, and Hong Kong have tried to communicate with the plane, but to no avail. Everyone is hoping, best case scenario, this was a mistake or a malfunction, and maybe the plane has landed somewhere. Maybe it's in Vietnam or in Hong Kong. After all, the plane did have seven and a half hours worth of fuel. That was more than enough. But as time goes on with still no trace of the plane, it becomes clear that this just simply isn't the case. The plane is still nowhere to be found, as if it's just vanished into thin air. And after the news of the missing flight broke, the search now for the wreckage begins. They began the search for Flight 370 in the area it was last tracked, in the Indian Ocean. Multiple aerial searches are performed within the following days. Planes and vessels from multiple countries scour that region for any sign of the plane, but there's still nothing. An underwater search is also performed, but there's still no proof that Flight 370 was in those waters. Despite having no evidence of this other than the fact that this is the last known location of the plane, Malaysia's Prime Minister announces that the flight must have landed in the southern Indian Ocean. The public is outraged. The families of the passengers want answers, they want proof. More and more searches are conducted over months, and the search for missing Flight 370 continues until June of 2015 and has still failed to find any debris belonging to the plane. But the following month, they finally find something. On July 29, 2015, beach cleaners discover debris in the French colony of Saint-André Reunion, which is a small island in the Indian Ocean near Madagascar. This debris turned out to be a section of a plane's wing, and it has a serial number on it that serial number linked back to the missing plane. Now a search of this area was performed. 
There were a few more pieces of debris found and allegedly a few personal items that could have belonged to the passengers on this plane. And if that wasn't strange enough, an oil rig worker that was working in this area at the time reported seeing a plane flying through the sky on fire. Another person claimed to have seen the same thing as they sailed in the ocean. And these two people are in no way connected. It was confirmed to have been around the time that the flight would have been in that area, but the claims themselves of course couldn't be proven unless they had found the plane. The fact that a piece of the plane was found in this area was the first hard evidence that proved that the plane had in fact gone down in the Indian Ocean. But was it real? A lot of people believe this was all part of a plan. Maybe the Malaysian government was really starting to feel the heat, because they had no evidence to support the idea that the plane had crashed in the ocean. So maybe, according to some, this debris had been planted. And here's why. The search had been going on for over a year, with not a single thing found, and costing the Malaysian government about $150 million at this point, which is more than any other search in history. The Malaysian government was certainly feeling pressure from the public, so people wonder if this was their solution. Back in 2012, so a couple of years before this whole incident, this exact airplane that was being flown on the day of its disappearance had an accident. Nobody was hurt and it was nothing serious, but it had collided with another plane on the runway, and as a result of this, the right wing of the plane had to be repaired. When repairs need to be done to airplanes, the old parts sort of go into what I would equate to a junkyard, but specifically for airplanes. And coincidentally, or not, the piece of debris found on Reunion Island just so happened to be the right wing of the plane. Additionally, every side of the debris was covered in barnacles. Barnacles can only be formed on surfaces that are completely submerged in water at least 90% of the time. So some experts wanted to test this. They took the pieces of debris and placed them into some water tanks. The pieces float. So their question became, how then would it be possible for the piece of the missing plane to be covered in barnacles on all sides. The barnacles were also tested. These tests could determine the temperature of the waters that the barnacles grew in, and from those results, it was deemed nearly impossible for those barnacles to have formed in this specific part of the Indian Ocean due to the temperature being much colder than where it was found. This would suggest that the barnacles were developed in different waters. So, is it possible that the part that was fixed from the plane back in 2012 was planted in order to orchestrate the events that the Malaysian government thought was most likely what happened? Sure. Are people possibly looking for any way to disprove the government's theory because of their distrust in them? Also very likely. This is just something that you have to decide for yourself once you've put all the pieces together. But before you come to your final conclusion, let's go over what theories exist about the disappearance of Flight 370. Between that first finding until March of 2016, 
Additional plane pieces were said to have been found belonging to the plane, although there is no definitive way to link them to Flight 370. Some of these additional pieces were found along the coast of Madagascar. So, the Malaysian government had arranged a plan to have one of their members go and retrieve those pieces from Madagascar officials. The person that was set to do this had done this many times before. This was his actual job, to transport debris for government purposes. And he had never really had any issues. But for an unknown reason, while en route to obtaining these pieces of debris, the person responsible for doing this was shot dead in Madagascar's capital. And those pieces are still in possession of the Madagascar authorities. So let's go over some more theories of this fateful flight. There was some unspecified cargo that was supposed to go from Malaysia to China, and it was being transported on this commercial flight, Flight 370. When the airline released information about the cargo that was on board, it made things even more confusing. The cargo that was on Flight 370 that day was about 5 tons of tropical fruit and over 450 pounds of lithium-ion batteries. Some experts believe that these two items, once mixed together, could have exploded or caught fire and eventually led to the plane crashing into the sea. This theory would also explain the claims about seeing an airplane on fire in the sky, right? I guess this could be possible, but it doesn't really explain the plane disappearing off radar. When the cargo manifest did come out, Malaysian government officials argued that it was inaccurate for whatever reason, and so that caused even more confusion about what exactly was on that plane. What others believe is that this is all somehow connected to another theory that suggests that Flight 370 could have been cyber hijacked. After 9-11 took place, Boeing began creating a patent called Remote Control Takeover of Aircraft. This would basically be a system built into these planes in order to prevent successful hijackings. The way the system would work is that in the case of a hijacking on board, this built-in feature would allow someone on the ground to continue flying the plane, even allowing them to reroute and safely land the plane while taking control from anyone on board completely. But as far as anyone knows, this system was never officially installed in any commercial flights. It was something that was in the works, but was never actually approved for use. But what if that's not true? Some believe that Boeing, specifically with their larger planes, may actually have this feature and that it's just not public information. Now, the last place the plane was seen heading was toward the Indian Ocean. The U.S. does have a protected military base with a landing strip on the island of Diego Garcia. What if this theory was true, and the plane was being forcefully landed onto this specific landing strip? Being a protected military base, no one is allowed to enter without permission. So, say they landed the plane, and the U.S. military confiscated this mystery cargo, and then got rid of the plane and the people on it. Or, say the plane was seen flying in, and they were shot down as a result, and then it was quickly covered up. From this point of view, the U.S. government could have been the ones responsible for planting that piece of the aircraft where it was found on Reunion Island. Testimony of two journalists might actually support this theory. 
These journalists spoke to witnesses near the island of Diego Garcia, and according to their statements, a large aircraft with red stripes, just like what was featured on the missing plane, flew past the island on the morning of March 8th. It was flying low, insinuating that it was either descending to land or that it was possibly having some type of mechanical issue. If that were the case, it could have then landed on the island of Diego Garcia because it was the nearest location with an airstrip, and then fulfilled either the first theory, they wanted whatever was on that plane and got rid of the rest, including the passengers and crew, or that because the US military wouldn't have been able to communicate with the plane, it may have been shot down as a result. Further confusing the fate of Flight 370, we have the 227 passenger tickets that were purchased, but there was an additional ticket that was scanned. There's no record of who this was and why they were on the flight, but this theory states that the 228th passenger was the plane's hijacker. But it's still hard to find motive. Lastly, and the theory probably most widely believed, is pilot-assisted suicide. Captain Zahari was going through a hard time. Maybe he locked the co-pilot out of the flight deck, switched off the communication system so the plane could no longer be tracked, put on an oxygen mask, and then depressurized the aircraft. Flying that high, everyone on the flight without a mask on would die from lack of oxygen. Then, he crashed the plane in a location where he believed it would never be found. So, what do you guys believe happened to Malaysia Flight 370? I feel like all of these theories could make sense, in theory, for a lack of a better words, but I also feel like each one of them leaves some details unexplained. I would definitely like to know what you guys think happened. This has been a story that has stuck with me ever since it happened. It's deeply unsettling, very, very strange, and probably one of those things that will never again happen in history. This is all we have for our topic today. I really hope that you all enjoyed it. Please make sure that you're following our podcast on whichever platform you're listening from. Check us out on our social media pages. I'll have those linked in the podcast description. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to keep it spooky. Spooky.